The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. As you can hear, I'm still sick, but P. Nate and Pooty are still in Garage Mahal. Two weeks in a row, like the Houston Astros, we're cheating up a storm right over here. Hey? <laughs> you just wanted to bring in the Houston I, Astros. I really yeah. did just want to burn everybody in Texas for the cheating Astros. Yeah. Um, I if know Ga- it's a little... If Gabe Wrench is listening, I'd love to... This is where you insert the <laughs> deep in the heart of Texas. Deep in the heart of Texas. I just really like to rip on cheating baseball teams because yeah. it's funny. Would you take uh, away their championship? 100%. I would take away their championship and I would you know what and if it's proven that Altuve used the buzzer I would ban him from baseball really well they banned Pete Rose for betting he didn't do anything yeah wrong. that's a, you know what that's what's interesting to me is that they either need to soften on some of the guys who got like lifetime bans like Pete Rose like Pete Rose bet on his own team to win legitimately Houston cheated and won a championship I'd ban him forever yeah no forgiveness wow <laughs> no grace yeah <laughs> just that's kidding. hard just because I like Altuve I like Correa more so I realized this story is like a month ago but yeah, we're yeah. just finally getting a chance to talk about it I actually thought of you because you're like Houston's kind of like your second team I, they are and that's I, I'm right like, when the Jays are funny. floundering as they often do Houston's like I was ecstatic when they won the, the championship I, I like Houston I, mean, I know it hurt, a little. It, it hurt a it's little th- it stings it stings it does yeah so anyway that's uh, that's what's going on we're the Rebel Podcast, and we're dropping on a Wednesday, and uh, we have lots of other podcasts in the network. I uh, won't go through them all because you know them by now, but check out the new one, Apprentice Theologians, that drops every other Monday uh, with Blair Rollette and Lila Van Brimmer, and I think that's a really kind of under-targeted demographic, you know, how Christian teenagers and tweens can think through cultural things. You know, one of the first episodes, they were taking down the whole transgender Barbie and talking about Greta Thunberg, so, you know, good for them talking about some controversial things from their perspective from a biblical worldview because they have great parents who are teaching them the Bible. So it's an important voice because like the truth is most teenagers aren't going to pick up our podcast or, or or other older people talking and think it's relevant to what they're going through in their, in their lives. Cause one teenagers think that they're in the center of the universe at that point in time. Yeah. But two, it's, it's like peer peer is always more powerful than anything. Right. Definitely. to hear like good, especially at that age, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like good theological talks about issues that they're dealing with. I think it's very impactful. So if you have teenagers, you're, if you have kids who are listening to our podcast, 
you don't necessarily need to get them to listen to us. Send them that one. Get them, yeah, for sure. Get them to test that out. And I'll just say the first couple of episodes, I would say, no offense, Pooty, they have better chemistry in their first couple episodes than we had in ours. <laughs> if, if anyone was to go back and listen to our first few episodes, they were pretty rough. They started off doing pretty well. So Blair and Lila are doing well. Our chemistry wasn't the problem. We literally scripted. Remember, we had like, and we had to get yeah. rid of the sheets. We did have to get rid of the sheets. <laughs> what we learned is that uh, no planning is what's best for the rest. <laughs> So here comes an episode Let's just wing Flying it. by the seat of our pants Speaking of flying by the seat of our pants uh, Let's transition into Rebel News <laughs> My favorite part All right, I haven't told you anything that's going on uh, about this, but uh, I wanted to uh, read a bit of an article. I don't know if you heard about this. The conservative Christian satire website, The Babylon Bee, was again forced to defend itself amid accusations from secular media that it's spreading misinformation. CNN reporter Donnie O'Sullivan took issue with The Babylon (laughs) Bee on Sunday, tweeting his disapproval with a satire piece poking fun at the prominent Democratic reactions to the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. It was actually quite funny. So the piece that he got up in arms about was hilarious. They had a picture of the general and they said, Democrats losing their mind over assassination of a terrorist finally admit that uh, what they're really nervous about is they're not used to killing people who will fight back. And then there's a picture of an ultrasound. Oh, my word. Yeah, it was good. good. So first of all, let me just address the elephant in the room. We've talked unfavorably about the B before. We've read some of their stuff and we laugh at it, but we've talked unfavorably about the B a couple times because I think early on, they just picked easy targets, right? They're poking jabs at uh, Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn, and those are easy targets, right? But I think that they've gotten much more classically satirical recently, where they're taking on bigger subjects, and they're they're even, they're, they're willing to let the satire um, hurt their audience as well, right? They've done some stuff for Trump and against Trump and for Republicans and and everything. So anyway, all that's secondary. But uh, so this CNN reporter gets on there and <laughs> blasts Babylon B for spreading misinformation. So then Babylon B blasts back and they say CNN attacks the B. There's only room for one <laughs> misinformation media outlet in, on the internet, which was just brilliant. Yeah. Anybody who has ever done any kind of like who considers himself at all funny waits for that opportunity where somebody tries to like throw you down and it's like so obvious that you have to come back just perfectly ready. Yeah. Like it's like it's basically an 80 mile an hour fastball right down the heart with a buzzer in your pocket. Right. It's perfect. (laughs) Like it's like you can't get easier than that. It's amazing. There's so much about that. That's hilarious. Yeah. One, I agree with what you said. I, I actually, I've been impressed with the B over the last little while. Yeah, they've done more really so well. than like when they were just making fun of Platt and making fun of like yep. you know people Christians all the time because they've started to point out the asinineness of our society. Where it's just like you should be laughing at the fact that these are happening, yep. and then he, then CNN pokes fun. And I and I think it's like good satire burns and it's like one of those things where it burns because it's true yeah and so like if you think in your real life relationships when you're making fun of somebody or you're poking fun not that i'm I'm not advocating you to do it but when you do you can always tell when you actually hit a nerve totally and you hit the nerve because now it becomes no longer a joke yeah they take it seriously because they respond and the beat hit a nerve with the cnn and cnn probably the biggest news network in the world right 
comes out a little a little website. It's like, hey, blah blah blah. Well, it shows that they're not little anymore, right? Exactly. Like it shows that they've really taken off. But this is that classic, like, how many Twitter followers, how many Facebook likes did the B get after that, right? And so good for them. And I think that the B has, has come a long way. I'd still like to see them turn it around, right? So interestingly, um, one of the writers went on Fox News and kind of made fun of CNN with Tucker Carlson from Fox News, which I, I don't mind. But like, I'd like to see some of their articles. And they've done a couple of these sorts of things that talks about, you know, yeah, let's be honest, Fox News is just as biased as CNN. They're just on the other side of the, right? They're on the other side. And most Christians tolerate it because Fox News is conservative, but they're just as biased, right? They're just as... Anyway, yeah. so I'd like to see the B like jump on that stuff, but I think it, you know I thought that was hilarious. I thought they responded well, and it was great to see. And if you guys happen to know Seth Dillon, who's the CEO of Babylon B, yeah. tag him in this episode yeah, so we can him, get yeah. him on this yeah. on the podcast. We've tried to reach out to them before, but see, we reached out to them before it was sold, right when Adam Ford or whatever his name was still owned it, and he never got back to us. So maybe this guy will. This guy, Seth. Yeah. Come on, Seth. Seth. Come on. All right. Uh, We are in the middle of a series, and uh, this series is called No Other Gospel. And today's episode is actually uh, in response to a request that we got to address the topic of universal salvation. I won't rehash it. Uh, You can listen to the last two episodes if you want a little bit of background on Galatians and what I'm preaching through and why we picked this topic and why we're going through it. But essentially what we want to do is we want to proclaim the true gospel, the gospel that uh, salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures of uh, alone, to the grace of God alone. The, the gospel that was reclaimed at the Reformation, that was preached by Jesus himself, that uh, the apostles laid the foundation for, and the gospel that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so we want to uphold that by poking and looking at some of the perversions of the gospel that have distorted the true gospel. And we get this from Galatians when uh, Paul is writing to the Galatians saying that he's astonished that so many of the Galatians are are ready to abandon him who called you and the gospel that saved them. And he says, not that there is another gospel, right? He says, there's only one. He says, but there are some who trouble you who come along and distort the gospel. And so that's what we want to poke at. That's what we want to expose is some of the perversions, the distortions of the gospel that are still currently in the church, right? There are first century heresies, Gnosticism and legalism and antinomianism. And we'll get into some of those because I think a lot of them have, uh, they're alive and well in in the North American church, but we're kind of doing this in order of priority, I think. And last week we took on the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement. Today, we're going to talk about what I would call kind of the pluralistic gospel and universalism. So the pluralistic gospel, this is that idea that you, I'm sure you've heard described in a variety of ways that everybody has their own path to God and Christianity is just one of many ways to God. The most humble of the pluralistic gospel proponents would say something along the lines of, you know, God is so transcendent, so unknowable, so unfathomable that he has revealed himself to us. And in our flawed ways, the Christians have part of the truth and the Muslims have part of the truth. This is where that coexist bumper sticker comes along, you know. And so there's this famous analogy. It's not Oprah's analogy, but she's the lead of this church, though. Yeah, she's yeah, she's the she's the high priestess of. 
this uh, false gospel, really. And so you have um, Deepak Chopra, right? So I think he uses this analogy, but it's an old proverb. And when he was on Oprah, he shared this with her and she's been sharing it ever since. And so the analogy is called the blind elephant analogy. And so the idea is if there was an elephant that was sitting in the middle of the room and you had 10 people around that elephant, everybody's touching a different part of the elephant, right? Somebody's touching the trunk, somebody's touching the tusk, somebody's touching, you know, the side, somebody's touching the leg, somebody's touching the the tail. Somebody's touching yeah. some other things. <laughs> some other like, things, yeah. Um, you know, somebody's got an ear flapping in the face, you know, all that kind of stuff. And everybody is blindfolded, right? And so everybody is just describing what they're feeling. And so if the elephant is God or the eternal transcendence or, you know, whatever, then the Buddhist might have a portion of truth in describing a trunk and the Christians might be describing the tail. And so there's this idea that if as long as everybody believes in something right? And they're true to it and they try to live a a good life, then, you know, they're all kind of meandering their way to God. So that's kind of the the gospel, uh, the false gospel of pluralism. You don't have to know the blind elephant analogy. Somebody doesn't have to know that analogy. Here's what you're going to hear, like talking about boots on the ground, real life conversations. This is what your coworker is going to say. That's your truth. (laughs) That's that's practically how this works out. You have your truth. I have my truth. This is my truth. That's your truth. And we're all just trying to do right by whatever. Right. The funny thing about that is that like, specifically Christianity and Islam point out that our truth contradicts your truth. Like neither yeah. one has room for another truth. So yeah. just that analogy, like for people, I just, I just think of yeah. like people no, at my work who are like, Oh, that's your truth. Be like, no, literally your truth says that my truth can't exist. Yeah. And mine definitely says that about yours. <laughs> it's just one of those funny things that like, it sounds really good. If I didn't know better, if I was uneducated, if I wasn't basically, if I wasn't redeemed, then God hadn't revealed the truth to me, it would sound like a really good gospel to me. Well, it's tolerant. Right? It's, it's nice. It, it requires, exactly. It requires no Change. changing of you. Yep. We can agree to disagree, which is a phrase I loathe for the yep. record, because I never, I never agree to disagree. <laughs> you will change or I will change. It's one of the two. It's called or reformation. stop returning my calls. It's called reformation, people. Anyway, it's another one. Um, reformation. But it's just, it's just, it's such a slick and like shiny way to like yeah. get around actually having to face hard questions of truth. Right. And so it feigns a moral high ground, right? Because it's like, you know, well, you're just trying to change my opinion, but I'm saying I'm not threatened by your position, man. Like you do you, I do me, right? Like, so it feigns this sort of moral I'm high the, ground. I'm the tolerant one. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm cool I, you. yeah, you're just not as enlightened, right? You're just not as evolved, right? You're stuck in an old paradigm, all that kind of stuff, right? And you see how this has, has weaseled its way into the church through acceptance of things that the Bible strictly prohibits, right? So you see the Christian church succumbing to this gospel. When you hear people say, and I I was actually just talking to a couple of friends the other day, they go to a Catholic church. They're beautiful, wonderful guys. And uh, I was just chatting with them and in their paradigm, actually, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if it was in their paradigm, but they were talking about Catholics in general and how most Catholics would believe that an Orthodox Jew or a devout Muslim would go to heaven if they didn't have knowledge of Jesus. So somebody who grew up in a, you know, a community where they never heard about Jesus and the only religion they ever heard was Islam or Judaism, and they were faithful to that, but nobody ever shared Jesus with them and they died, they would be judged based on how well they adhered to their truth. 
And so that's even infiltrating like Christian circles. And you hear this in the sorts of questions that Christians come up with. Well, what about the guy, you know, in the African tribe that's never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus and he dies. Does that guy go to hell? And the answer is yes, because there's no such thing as an innocent guy in an African tribe who's never heard the gospel because we're all guilty because we're all born into Adam's sin. And Romans one is very, very clear that God revealed himself, right? That his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power have been plainly seen by what's been made Mm -hmm. so that man is without excuse. Nobody has an excuse because just living in this world with this amount of design gives men enough knowledge of the divine that they're then accountable for it. So it's not just that we're born into sin, which we are, right? You you still have to deal with original sin somehow. We're all born into iniquity, David says in the Psalms. But not only is original sin a real thing, and Paul teaches this obviously in 1 Corinthians 15, in Romans chapter 5, that in Adam all die, right? All die, right? Because Adam sinned, all die. And then he goes on to say, and and all have fallen short of the glory, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So not only do we all sin, but we're also all marred with sin because of Adam's transgression in the garden. So you have a couple strikes against you already. And Romans 1 makes it very clear you're not being condemned because of the Jesus you've never heard about. You're being condemned because you're accountable to the creator that you can plainly see, but you're subverting that truth. You're, you're, uh, what's the word that he says there? Um, those who exchange the truth of God for a lie. Yeah. R.C. Sproul has a quote that's like, I saved in my phone because I, I loved it in response to the, Oh, what about that poor Ethiopian boy who's never seen or I just used Ethiopian, yes. um, never heard anything. He says, I don't have to prove to you that God exists because I think you already know it. Your problem is not that you don't know that God exists. Your problem is that you despise the God who you know exists. Your problem is not intellectual. It's moral. You hate God. And it's like, and but when you apply that yeah. to the, to that scenario and it's like, Everyone knows the Bible tells us that everybody knows and we suppress that truth. Right. And unless God reveals that to us, we all reject him and we'll despise him because our nature is to be rebels against his will. We hate him. Right. Until God changes us. And think of how intolerant what you just said is, Chris. It's so intolerant. Right. I'm probably getting fired. It's fine. It makes no. Well, and that's the thing. It makes no room. Right. It makes no room for anybody of a different faith group. But that's the problem, right? The problem of the pluralistic mindset is that everybody has a portion of truth. And I think one of the reasons this is a false gospel that has picked up so much traction is because we don't teach logic or reason in school anymore. Like really, when it comes down to it, because just think logically through this. Jews say Jesus isn't the Messiah. Christians say Jesus is the Messiah. Those two, my truth versus their truth, is irreconcilable. Either Jesus is or Jesus is not the Messiah. There's not another, well, you know, what is it? Schrodinger's cat. The cat's either dead or it's alive, right? Jesus is either the Messiah or it's or he's not. And just because you haven't opened the box, just because you haven't done the hard work of figuring out who Jesus is, doesn't mean he's both dead and alive. Doesn't mean he's both the Messiah and not Messiah, right? Well, there's, there's no neutral, right? We talk about this all the time. Yeah. There's one side or the other side, there isn't shared ground. 
You That's know, right. <laughs> and so you have uh, Buddhists who would say that all suffering is an illusion. You have the Bible that says all suffering is part of the providence of a sovereign God, right? Those are two very different truths. A Buddhist would say the way to experience bliss, the way to you know transcend the evils of this world are through meditation and denying your desires. The Bible says, actually, get your desires correct seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Seek God and he will give you the desires of your heart. So it's not about denying your heart's desires. It's about getting a new heart that desires the right things. See, these truths are not reconcilable because they're fundamentally opposed. And so you have people who would come along and say, of course, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life, but he's just one way. Well, you forget what he says right after. And then he says, and no one comes exactly. to the father except through me. So there are exclusive claims that Jesus makes, that Muhammad makes. There are exclusive claims that every worldview makes. And just because their advocates have gone soft doesn't mean that those exclusivities ceased to exist. Yeah, exactly. Right. The Bible is very clear and it's very intolerant of any other way. Right. Um, I th- like I'm speaking to the Christians now who want to soften like, oh, well, maybe if they believe just this little thing, they're going to be fine or whatever. The Bible's very clear that there's one way in yeah. and that's through faith alone in Christ Yeah, because nothing else saves. That's, That's exactly the, right. <laughs> the only thing and is intolerant. That is to the, it sounds to everybody else to be like, well, your faith will literally lead you to hell. If you're talking about Islam, if you're talking about other, other things is intolerant as that sounds. Cause even to me, it sounds intolerant. It's like, yes, it is celebrate that. Cause you know, the truth is that's what the Bible says. And you never have yeah. to defend what the Bible says. The Bible is the sword. They're on the defensive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I hear this all the time by people who have been caught up in the pluralistic gospel in one way or another. I'm told this all the time as a out of date conservative bigot who you know hates women and gay people. That's what I'm accused of, right? And I'm told that unless I get my views up to date to the 21st century about sexuality and marriage and you know gender roles or whatever, and they say then Christianity will never right? will never grow. You'll never win people. You'll never get people into your churches. And I would just say, guess what? Jesus didn't call us together and give us a great commission of, hey, go and get me elected for president. (laughs) Go be my (laughs) PR staff. Like go make me sound real great to the world. It's go and make disciples and teach them obedience. And why? Because I have all authority in heaven on earth. Right. The go isn't just go. It's go. Therefore, why? Because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm King Jesus. All of this belongs to me. Go get it for me. Right. It's just such a stupid thought, because the funny thing is about that. Like, I bet you you've heard that from people who are in church, who go yes. to churches, who would say they're Christians or say yes. you would hear that same thing. And it's it's like, have you never thought about the immutability of God? The fact that he doesn't change. He's the exact same God who said these things originally. You're thinking, oh, he was culturally out of date. He's changed his <laughs> mind now. Right. No, um, like it's yeah. it's just such a uh, how do I word this? night? I won't. It's an idiotic <laughs> mindset to think that yeah. like, be like, oh, well, these things have changed because culture on earth has changed to think, oh, well, God's changed along with it. Well, no, the Bible's very clear that God doesn't change. Yeah. Hebrews Uh, says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, 6 says that I, I, the Lord, your God do not change. Exactly. So basically (laughs) what you're saying, if you, if you're saying what you said to Nate, you're basically saying, well, God made a mistake. 
Yeah. Well, that's a dangerous line of questioning that I don't think you should play out. Yeah. Well, um, and not only that, but like, and, and I've said this before and I've gotten questions about it. So let me try to be as clear as I can. If God's standard changes, right? His law is his standard and it reflects his character. Why does the law of God not change? Because God's character doesn't change, right? So God's law reflects his character. But if his law standard changes, then we aren't saved, right? Because Jesus came in flesh once. He lived one life. He adhered to the law, his perfect righteousness. And this is all part of the true gospel that we're trying to exalt in this series. He lived a perfect, sinless life and his perfect obedience is what's imputed to us. That's what saves us before the father, the imputed righteousness of Jesus. So if God's standard changes, then the offering of his imputed righteousness is no longer valid. That's an atonement that no longer saves if God's standard is changed. So there's a lot at stake here. <laughs> I want to flip over into universalism because I think that just like last week when we connected the Word of Faith movement and the prosperity gospel, I think there's a connection here because I think one of the reasons that people are motivated to get to a pluralistic mindset of, well, you know, they're, they're just doing their thing and I'm doing my thing and that's their truth, blah, blah, blah. And it comes back to this thought about the, you know, the African, the, the, you know, the, the innocent African tribe guy who's never heard the name of Jesus. Rob Bell didn't start this. Rob Bell was just one of the, the more recent in a long line of heretics who have espoused a very old heresy called universal reconciliation or universal salvation. And the idea is, is that it's so abhorrent that God would condemn some to eternal suffering that eventually he will save everyone. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? And so the idea is, is that when they do, they'll eventually be saved. So just for any Christians who this is completely new to, I'll just kind of run this through. So there are different factors or different fragments that believe different things. I would say that some universalists believe in a sort of holding tank, a sort of purgatory type place where people go when they die in order to be refined. It's actually interesting how it goes back to a sort of the Catholic idea of purgatory, right? One of the things that Martin Luther was raging about at the Protestant Reformation was the idea that they opened up the treasury and you could buy indulgences, which was sort of you're buying the merit of past saints and applying them so you could buy, purchase with real money, the good deeds of deceased saints, because they had more than they needed, Chris, so they go into what's yeah, called the treasury. <laughs> and, uh, and so... They overfilled their bank? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. overfilled, yeah. And so those of us who are in overdraw, <laughs> right, or the, uh, we need some of the saints' extra good deeds, and so we could buy them, and so we could purchase indulgences and apply them to our loved ones who had already passed away who were in purgatory to help buy their way into heaven, yeah. right? That's what that... Can, can I just... Uh, I have a... V- stupid visual that I just think is funny for some bizarre reason right now what I'm picturing is like at the checkout counter that old lady who's got all the coupons and she's like but I got a coupon for this one and I got a coupon for this one and I got a coupon and Jesus just like but I don't know you yeah and he's like but I got coops man I got the coupons I don't know why I don't know why indulgences this is insight into how my brain works is like that's how I play out that scenario be like well that won't work that won't work I know 
that won't work. I've seen this play out in the store and that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Uh, uh, you can't use two coupons for that. <laughs> and so then some of them would call hell. They would talk about how oftentimes in scripture fire is used to describe a refinement, right? So they would say that time in hell, right? So they might not believe in a sort of intermediary place, a, a purgatory that exists between heaven and hell. What they would say is that hell is a sort of refining fire, right? Where you go to get all of the sin kind of burned off of you, so to speak. And you have an opportunity there where you're punished for, you know, what you've done on earth, but then you eventually make it into heaven because love wins, right? And that was the the title of Rob Bell's book, that love wins. Essentially, it all comes from a place of wanting to get God off the hook for the just horrible PR decision to send people eternally to hell. Okay, so we have lots to say on this. One of the texts that you can go to is in Matthew 25. It says, They, the unsaved, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And so this is talking about the final judgment. And so what the universalist will say to get around that verse. So again, you might be listening as a Christian and say, how do they even defend that biblically? That, you know, verses like that seem so clear, right? The unsaved will go off into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, they would know the Greek word for eternal there is the Greek word aeon, which means just an age. It, literally, it's translated as age. So if you're translating that literally, it would, it would read, then the unsaved will go away to an age of punishment, but the righteous to an age of life. And so the universalist will say that age of punishment is sort of the the refining time in hell before they eventually win. Well, what's interesting about that is that you can't translate a word one way and the other way in the same sentence. So if we believe that the age of punishment isn't eternal, then we have to believe that the age of life for the righteous is also not eternal. So if we believe in the eternal life given by Jesus, which is all throughout scripture, uh, if we believe that that's eternal, then we have to translate it for the same word, the same way in the same sentence, right? So if it's, if it's age one way, it's age the other way as well. If it's eternal one way, it's eternal the other way as well. I don't know, Chris, have you ever been accused of being a universalist because you're post-millennial? I've never been accused of it, but I have got the question, like, does that mean you mean you believe this? And I'm always like, well, no, (laughs) like we still very much believe in hell and eternal consequences and eternal punishments. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive. And one of the reasons I bring that up is because I actually find it interesting because I think it's easier for a post millennial to combat the idea of universalism than it is for anyone else. Because if you're not a post millennial, you have to do something with First John 4.14, that he's the savior of the whole world, right? You have to do something with John 3.17, that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. You have to do something with First John 2.2, that he's the propitiation for us, and not only for us, but for the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, right? You got to do something with those verses. And if you aren't a post-millennialist, you have to kind of explain those away in such a way where... Jesus does end up condemning most of the world and not saving it, right? Like, yeah. And so I think as a post-millennialist, those verses that seem to be the poster boy verses 
for universalism, right? That Jesus is the savior of the whole world. Propitiation is not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. I think it's John 12, right? If anybody hears my words and does not do them, I do not judge him. I didn't come to judge. I came to save the world. All of those verses um, are kind of the poster verses for universalism. Well, if you believe in post-millennialism, if you believe that the world is heading on this side of history to a place where the world will in fact be won by the gospel, where the Great Commission will be fulfilled, then you have a very real, very literal fulfillment of those verses that doesn't mean universalism. Right. So as post-millennialists, we don't believe that everyone gets saved, but we do believe that the final state of the world before Jesus comes back is a world that's been evangelized, that the gospel has conquered and that the Great Commission has been fulfilled on. I actually think the post-millennialist has a greater apologetic against the universalist. Well, it's, it's funny how truth ends up being the right one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What are some other verses or some other things that you would say to, to somebody who's caught up in, in universalism? Like almost any doctrine, read your Bible because there's an overwhelming eternality of, of hell. Yeah. And I think, I think it's one of those things that like, it's often overlooked that Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. Yeah. And like, you for sure. think, there's, there's so many verses, Luke 13, three, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Well, what is perish talking about? Death, destruction, enter by the narrow gate, the way that's broad leads to destruction. And many go, go to the, through that one. There's so many, there's so many verses. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? That's Matthew 23. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction, everlasting destruction, which again, I think that one for me, that that's second Thessalonians, by the way. But, um, when you, when you're thinking about universalism, like how do you, how do you explain away everlasting destruction? Like everlasting sort of, it's just one of those things. I think, I think the Bible's very, very clear with that. There's like literally I think I wrote down as we were preparing, I think I wrote down like 40 verses about hell, basically just saying like it's forever. You said it a little bit earlier. You can't say we have everlasting life and then say there's not everlasting destruction. Right. Um, if you're going to explain away the time period of one, then it affects the time period of the other. Right. Exa- exactly. Yeah. Um, there is a weird, uh, jo- was it? Somebody believes, like, I can't remember what it's called, but where they, like, uh, annihilationism, where it's yeah, like, yeah. it's temporarily hell for hell, but Christians will live forever, which is just like an offshoot of the same, because, um, like, there's a, a fundamental, basically, like we were saying with tolerance of, of pluralism earlier, there's a lack of trust in what the word of God says and what the Bible says about hell that makes us uncomfortable because rather than just look and say, God is just, and he can do as he pleases. We want to find a way to explain away the nastiness of, oh, he's going to send millions of souls he's created to hell. Right. And as Calvinists, we would look at and be like, well, that means he created them for that. Right. And it's like, it's, that's a hard one to explain away yeah. unless you look at the grand narratives of scripture. Right. I think that's why these heresies come into play because it's softer. Right. It's just, it's again, softening. And I think those verses are necessary to mention because when Jesus says repent or perish, which he says several times, perish is, is very specific, right? He's not talking about refinement, right? He's not talking about a temporary holding place before you eventually have the, the chance to, to really get saved. He's talking about a finality. There's repentance, or there's perishing. And either one, like everything that we're saying, just like eternal destruction versus eternal life, all of these are equal in terms of their offer. So repentance leads to eternal life. Perishing leads to eternal death, 
right? And the repentance is forever and the perishing is forever. We believe once saved, always saved, right? That those whom the Father gives to the Son, this is John 6, not one of them will be snatched from his hand. And so upon true repentance and faith, that's forever. And upon dying apart without the repentance and the faith, that's equally forever. The other verse that comes to mind that I think is often overlooked in this argument is in Matthew 26, verse 24. Here Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Okay, so he's talking about Judas who betrayed him, right? And think about some of the other things. I think universalists um, have a difficult time explaining away when Jesus says, don't fear man who can kill the body, fear God who can kill the body and soul and hell, right? That's a really tough verse for universalists. But I think this one, because they do have their sleight of hand, right? As every false (laughs) teacher does. But I think this verse is really hard to get around. Talking about Judas, it would have been better for him not to have been born. There is no scenario, there's no scenario in which somebody enters eternal life in Christ and that is worse than never having been born, which means that he is eternally separated from God. He's in a worse place because it would be better for him to not to have been born. The only way that I've ever heard a universalist try to get around this is by accusing Jesus essentially of hyperbole or exaggeration, but that's a sin. So we can't actually do that. There's so many verses here and we don't have time to go through them all, but I hope we've given um, the listener who asked in particular some thoughts on this and some places to go. But I think the, the strongest place, I, I think Matthew 26, 24 is, is really key there. I just want to take a quick pause here just to say, this is actually something I'm really passionate about. I have very close friends, very close family members who have fallen into this heresy. And I pray for their souls on a regular basis. I can tell you two or three people who I did very close ministry with in the the church that I started in ministry when I was a youth pastor, who slowly started down the slippery slope of, you know, pluralistic gospel leading to universalist gospel. And now they all call themselves atheists, all of them. They've all rejected it because that's the only place this leads. Romans chapter nine is, I think, the place where you kind of you got to go here. And I think it's the slam dunk, I guess, if you you will. Right. Romans nine is just the chapter for Calvinists. Right. This is where we go. God is sovereign. This is where he says, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated before either of them did anything while they were still in the womb. I chose one to love basically and one to hate and then he defends it (laughs) (laughs) and then he defends it and then he says um i hardened pharaoh's heart i raised up pharaoh for this purpose that he would be destroyed to destroy to to show my glory and then he goes on to say i will harden the heart of whom i will harden right like paul is going right at it here this is where paul the culmination of all the questions about he's preaching the gospel of free grace. God saves those whom he elected before the foundation of the world. He's been tooting that horn for eight chapters in Romans. And in chapter nine, he gets to the questions and answering the questions, all of these things. He goes in to say, but you will say, you know, that's not fair. 
right? And that's, and that's what he says. So in verse 14, this is Romans chapter nine. What shall, then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? And that, and that right there, right there. I, so I jumped in so that you didn't yep. continue. That right there is the question that every universal exactly universalist has is because like that doesn't seem fair. And then yep. Paul answers it. So this is their objection, right? Tell me if this sounds familiar. God is love. He's loving. A good and loving God would not send people to eternal damnation, especially those who have not heard of him, especially those who they're only the only thing they're guilty of is being born in a Muslim country. Right. These are the things you'll hear. 100 percent. So Paul is saying, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. The English translation of this does not do justice. This is essentially as as stern a reaction as Paul can. Basically, what he's saying is, you know, Lord forbid, but, you know, heaven forbid. This is how he's saying that by no means. He says, for he says to Moses. So is there injustice on God's part? No, because he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There's God's answer. How could you possibly send to hell? God says, I'll send to hell who I want to send to hell and I'll send to heaven who I want to send to heaven. That's a hard truth, but that's how the word of God answers this question. And so if you have a problem with this, your problem's not with me. Your problem's not with Chris. Your problem's with the word of God. Exactly. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what's that saying? That's saying it doesn't matter what you do. The only hope you have is that God would have mercy on your soul. That's it. That's the only hope any of us have. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What happened to Pharaoh? He got drowned in the Red Sea. (laughs) He got killed. His entire army dead. After suffering. (laughs) After suffering. Yeah. After his his child was killed, his land was plunged into 10 plagues, ecosystem, agriculture, all of it done. He dies in the water. Moses and the Israelites come through the Red Sea on dry ground. They're on the other side. The Bible actually says this is a gruesome scene. Flannel graph Sunday school stories. Don't get this one right. It says with the... Egyptian army washing up on the sea behind them. So there's dead carcasses washing up on one side of the sea and the live Israelites on the other side singing praises to God. Why? Because God chose to have mercy on them and chose to show his justice and his wrath to the other side of the sea. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. That's the end of it. I'm going to keep going because it goes. Um, You will say to me then. So now he's anticipating your response. And I know your response. If you're listening to this and this isn't your position, Paul is anticipating. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right? This is it. Well, if we're all just robots and God does what he wants, then why does he find any fault in me? And why would he send somebody to eternal hell? Paul knows what you're thinking. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, folks. He's got you. He's got your number. For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And here's where I think Paul is answering the question for us. 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Universalist, you cannot get around this verse. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What is the purpose of all those who will die apart from Christ. Why? So I think it's uh, Isaiah 46 that says, behold man who I've made for my glory, right? The purpose for God, that God created man was for his glory so that his divine power and attributes would be displayed in the world. What is the purpose of the unregenerate? Prepared for destruction. Exactly, same thing. Prepared for destruction. So this is a hard truth, and don't get me wrong. This is the hardest truth. This is the hardest pill to swallow in the whole Bible. It, it really is. And I don't want to make light of it because this was a, a, probably a two-year journey for me because we have our notions of what we believe is fair. We have our notions of what we believe is good and just and loving. And so let me just ask you this. Would a good judge let a man off who has sexually abused and murdered young children? No, of course not. No, of course not. And don't get me wrong. I get it. You're going to say, well, we're not all pedophiles. We're not all. Yeah, yeah, I I get that. Here's my point. My point is a good judge administers justice, right? We can't. We can't simply say God is loving. Therefore, he will forgive. It would be uncharacteristic of God. He would no longer be good. He would no longer be just. He would no longer be fair if he just let people off of their sin. That's why in his divine mercy, he has devised a plan to allow sinful people to be saved. Why? Because that sin still needs to be punished. This is the very heart of the gospel. That sin needs to be punished. And that's why Jesus died in our place. Exactly. Because our sin needed to be punished. The wages of sin is death. Somebody needed to die. And Jesus did it for us. And so God, in his divine mercy has decided to save some. And we'll all get outraged because we're sinful humans and this is what we do and we think we're the center of the universe. We think the story is all about us. We're going to say it's unfair that he doesn't save everyone. And I would say it's unfair that he saves anyone. Exactly. It's unfair that he saves anyone because we all deserve hell. We're all rebels. We've all gone our own way. We've all not lived like we're accountable to a creator. We all need the mercy of God. Yeah. And that's that's why you can't take out penal substitutionary atonement. You can't alter the gospel in any way because the moment you do that, your sin wasn't paid for in the correct way because we, like you just said, we're all guilty the Christians are the ones that are, are getting what they don't deserve because right. God in his wisdom and his sovereignty has decided to put our sin on Jesus. Right. And it's when you understand that is when you understand it wasn't because of some wise choice or anything like that. It was because of God's unbelievable mercy to us that right. he decided to crush his son in our place. Right. Exactly. So. Amen. And so I think I'll just end it with this. And that is, you know, the question of why is, is one that we, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that, that uh, everything that he's revealed to us is for us and our children, but the secret things of God belong to God alone. And we don't know the answer of why he saved some and why he hasn't saved others individually. I don't know why he saved me. I don't know why he didn't save others. What I do know is that he has saved some and has not saved others. And the big reason for it in terms of a very general sense is because 
This world is about displaying his glory. And if everyone gets saved, as the universalists say, then his justice is never on display. And his justice is just as much a part of his divine nature as his love. His wrath is just as much a part of his divine nature as his love, right? We cannot separate the attributes of God into the ones that we like the best. He is all these things and he is all of them simultaneously. And so some are vessels of mercy prepared for mercy and some are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And it's so that in a world where some will be saved to display his mercy, some will be destroyed to display his justice all of the attributes of god will be on display so at the end of the whole story we look at god and we see him for all of his glory all of his attributes and he's the one who looks wonderful it's not about us now i just end with one last thing i think i said i didn't with the last thing but i just want to say this because here's the other thing when people say well sucks to be pharaoh and it does suck to be pharaoh But here's the other thing that's true because the Bible proclaims it. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the hypothetical question that I've heard in response to sort of um, this Calvinistic assumption is what about the guy who does everything, repents and has faith and turns to God and God says, sorry, you're not chosen. That person doesn't exist. No, exactly. Everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, which means... Our gospel does not change. Our gospel is God created the world, has a standard for the world. We've all fallen short of that standard. And therefore, he devised a way that we could come back to relationship with him. He sent his son to die in our place. And if we would have faith that his son is who he says he was, died the death in our place that the scriptures say he did, and we trust in his imputed righteousness and trust that our sin was transferred to him, then God saves us because of our availing ourselves of the mercy of him. So there is no such person as the guy who comes to God with a full heart only to be turned away because he's not one of God's elect. Person doesn't exist. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you are among his elect and you'll be saved. It should spur us. Those who are saved should spur us into greater evangelism because we know what we've been saved from. Exactly. And it's so it's like it should spark us. I always get upset when I hear the I don't want to preach fire and brimstone. And I'm like, but that's the truth. You know what I mean? Like right. the, the truth is if people aren't saved, that's where they go. I'm not saying just try to scare them into heaven, but I'm saying like this should motivate Christians into understanding that like as C.S. Lewis says, there is no mere mortal. Yeah. Every single person we meet, every single person we talk to is going to spend eternity in one of two places eternal separation and torment or eternal glory with Christ. We don't know who's elect. The Bible tells us, and I think it's, I, he tell, it's Paul, there are still people in the city who need to hear yeah. um, what you what what you need to say. Our job here, we've been left here for the purpose to proclaim what he's done for us and what he's, and what he's doing in this world. The doctrine of hell, we can't lose it because it, it's one of those things that should light a fire under us to proclaim it and proclaim the fact that Christ is the only escape from that um, is to be in his kingdom. And I just think it should, it should motivate us uh, like all the time, basically. Amen. Amen. Alrighty. We're going to come back next week with another installment in this series. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. 